0: What's going on, gym bros and gym girls? My name is James, and welcome to the second episode of Gym Bro Talks, where we talk about the science behind fitness and nutrition. We'll also talk about lifestyle and topics that help with life success. Today, our guest is Brian Trung. He is not only a very experienced personal trainer, he is also the trainer of trainers. So, you think your trainer knows a lot, this guy knows even more. How are you doing today, Brian?
1: I'm good, James. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm going to preface what you just said and be like, yeah, you know, it's. I, I think it's all about helping uh, everybody find more about their potential. I wouldn't go as far as I know more than every other trainer, but I'm definitely willing to learn from every other trainer. So I think that helps to build up that knowledge.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. So I do, you know, have a ton of questions I actually have written down and I wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of, Squatting exercising and stuff like that. Do you mind kind of just like telling everyone what your background is what your experience is and stuff like that?
1: For sure. Yeah. Um, So I've been in the fitness industry probably coming up to about 10 years now. Wow. Um, I got started in the industry actually to uh, become certified so I could work with special needs kids. Mm. Um, I mostly worked with uh, kids with autism spectrum disorder. And I had noticed a big uh, deficit in a lot of like gross motor and fine motor skills. Um, And so early on, I took an interest and had worked with the families that I had been working with to help structure and create um, physical activity or physical movement based uh, programming for their kids. Um, I enjoyed that process so much that I eventually got certified and uh, kind of started to work at one of the commercial gyms. And I worked there for a good chunk of time, probably like six to seven years. Wow. Um, and then through that period, I also started doing some education um, over at a personal training school as well. And, I, and that's actually how I met James. No, that's awesome. Thank you for that. Tying into the
0: the motor skills, were you also like kind of like doing like exercising with with the kids and stuff like that to to improve you know the way they move in terms of functionality and, and, and things like that?
1: For sure. Yeah. So. Um, most, most kids who have ASD um, generally have um, some issues with their gross motor skills. And what we mean by that is that um, they're not always the most body aware or they don't really like exercising. Um, a lot of reinforcers that are given to them tend to be more like video games, could be food, it could be other activities. Um, and so exercise is not really something that many of them would want to like, do as, as fun. Um, so with mm. some of my students, like we we would do it for, during recess. We would like run laps around the gym. Um, we right. would do like squats onto like the little benches that are in the gym as well. Um, you yeah. know, we would play catch. We would do like um, you know like almost like a ladder drills without a ladder, and you know we'd toss like a, a ball back to each other. So working on a wide variety of skills, and um, some of these students that I had worked with for such a long time, uh, eventually uh, as they got older, I actually got to a chance to go over to their houses and help them design sort of like mini workout programs using their home equipment. So like, you know, just basic curls and like, you know, with dumbbells yeah. and step ups and things like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. I, I've never really like heard of something like that where it's, it's very Im- inspiring what, what you do, because I've never heard like someone, you know, getting into personal training, you know, starting from from there. Um, and so you I know going through your Instagram, I saw you have a lot of experience doing Olympic lifting. Did you also do like Mm. competitions as well?
1: Uh, So the thing is, the Olympic lifting was only something of a recent uh, interest of mine. Um, I I only competed once. I did like a a local um, competition and I uh, I qualified for provincials. (laughs) And uh, I think about like three weeks out from the competition, I had injured my wrist so badly that I had to pull out. And um, it probably took like another year or a year and a half to recover from that wrist injury. So it was uh, it was quite a long one.
0: Oh, no, that sucks. Gym injuries are the worst. I've once shattered my toe at the gym. I Ooh. was I was yeah, I was training with a client and um, yep. I had the, the I took the 35 pounder off the, the rack from chest height. And yep, it was yep. I, I was working at Club 16 actually it was when, when it just opened. And so yeah. all the plates, all the bumper plates are really shiny and like glossy and there's like a layer of oil on top and it slipped and it just dropped on my toe Oof. and just shattered. And my uh, manager at the time had to princess carry me out, drive me to the hospital. It was fun times. So gym injuries are not fun. So yeah. definitely uh, be careful. Um, yeah
1: so uh, and then with the the Olympic lifting thing I just got into that over the last couple of years and just really enjoyed it and was doing it for a while Um, because prior to that I we you know I I tried doing a little bit of everything I just like a jack-of-all-trades kind of thing
0: I remember back in you know personal training school we were always told you know you know taught to engage our core and, you know, if anyone is working with a trainer, they always say, engage your core, engage your core. Um, what, the, what, what does engage your core really mean? You know, like, because there's so many, I feel like I've heard so many types of different definitions of it and, and how to do it. What would you say engaging your core really means? Uh,
1: so I think this is the, the interesting about fitness, especially the longer that you um, are in it and the more that you learn. Um, There are a lot of things like you mentioned. We learn these things in a textbook. They're kind of told as um, the generally accepted way of understanding or doing things, right? You know, they'd always tell us things like, you know, feet, hip width apart, and, you know, knees, this and that, tracking over the toes. All of these things are great as guidelines. Um, And so even terminology such as, like, engage your core. I think it, it really comes down to like how does the person conceptualize that exactly as you've asked, and then that's how we can cue someone and um, to explain to them what that actually means. So at least for me, when I think right. about like setting your core, what I'm referring to when I speak to my clients um, is like creating spinal stiffness, right? creating that intra-abdominal pressure within their torso, and then to be able to move without that changing. So um, where a lot of people get into issues, for example, like in a deadlift or a squat, is like they try and brace. And then as they go down or go up at some point in the lift, um, that structure of their torso changed at some point. And so they've kind of lost that spinal stiffness for a, a period or a few seconds or however long. That doesn't automatically mean somebody will become injured or that they will be injured from it. Um, I think there's a lot of Mm -hmm. multifactorial things that we have to consider. So at least for me, I think about setting your core is creating spinal stiffness or at least creating um, irradiated tension from the inside out. So uh, the more tension and and sort of engagement I can create here in my torso, the stronger that I can be outwards into my limbs.
0: How do you go about creating this this pressure and the stiffness around the
1: core? Uh, so this one is definitely an interesting one for me as well because right. um, you can you can also look at this from a wide variety of ways. Uh, there are different ways of doing it that you've likely heard. So in our textbooks, they teach us um, that you can sort of draw in the belly button towards the yeah. spine. And then at the same time, you're supposed to essentially take air into the diaphragm and like create... Um, an expansion um, throughout the torso. So you're, generally, we try to describe it to people as like, you should feel like something's kind of like pressing outwards through uh, your low back and even through your abdomen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of people, when they do this intra-abdominal pressure, um, they tend to push their stomach out. They don't think about expanding through their lumbar as well. So right. um, what we actually like to cue people with is if you take your hands and you turn them upside down and place them on where your QL is, When you take the air in and you expand through, you should feel the air press into your hands. Right. So that is actually what uh, people are trying to do when they wear a belt, for example. They're trying to uh, create an external um, object for them to create that um, uh, tactile feedback of the intra-abdominal pressure. However, technically, we kind of already are wearing a belt, right? That's our core muscles in, in around our body that we're creating that expansion into. Um, sometimes people just, uh, they have difficulty doing that or maintaining it or controlling it throughout the entire lift, and that can affect um, the amount of force that they can generate.
0: So c- c- can, you, can you get away without using a belt?
1: Of course. Mm. I think uh, I think a belt is more for, um, depending on what you're, you're trying to use it for, right. um, I, when I refer to a belt in this case, I'm referring more to individuals who uh, think of or use the belt mm. as a way to prevent injury. Mm. Um, people who use a belt more for like power lifters mm. or heavy strength training and, and more of your higher intensity lifts, uh, of course, there can be a, a benefit to them um, as well. Right. It doesn't mean you need them. There are right. plenty of lifters who don't use them.
0: Right. Right, that makes sense. And I kind of want to just take us back to you know s- squats and deadlifts, because yeah. um, when, when, when we're doing squats and deadlifts, when we're trying to build muscle, let's just say, uh, that we, we know that the eccentric uh, motion of, of the movement is very important to keeping you mm-hmm. know the, the time under tension for our muscles. Um, I've seen in one of Jeff Nippert's videos. Uh, When he talks about squats and deadlifts, and he 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 kind of says that squats and deadlifts are more of a concentric focused movements, um, where you know like the drop, the eccentric part of it doesn't matter as much. You should really try and focus a little bit more on the concentric. What are your thoughts and view on this here?
1: I think with every question in fitness, the, the best answer is always to start with it depends because context matters greatly. Context uh, will affect who interprets an answer as you know, what they deem is correct or incorrect or, right. or, or uh, whatever else. Um, I think a better way of considering this is how does the concentric, isometric, or even eccentric portions of the squat affect growth Um, and what are we trying to accomplish so for example like if we're working on something like hypertrophy everyone always talks about uh, you know when we talk about what's the best um, exercises most people always say compound movements, squat, bench deadlift because they are the exercises that allow for us to lift at a quite a high potential we see it as a multi um, joint multi compound move or compound exercise but from a pure hypertrophy standpoint like that's not exactly what we're looking for what we're looking for is targeted and intentional um, stimulus to to ha- to cause a change right and so um, a squat is great absolutely mm-hmm. it's also the emphasis the emphasis on what you're trying to do in the squat so most people frankly do concentrate more on the concentric portions of your squat most people bottom down or bottom out of their squat um, and or tend to move much faster through the eccentric would that be fair to say
0: Mm, mm,
1: mm. Yeah. Now, where do most people have issues in the squat? It's almost always trying to come yeah. up out of the, the squat, right? And a lot of the times we also can consider the speed of their eccentric relative to how well they can get mm-hmm. out of the bottom. Mm-hmm. If you bottom out too fast or you lose your core, then we often would see minor to major shifts in the person's overall structure. Mm. The greater those shifts occur in a longer period of time, um, or sorry, over a longer period of time, the less targeted stimulus we're actually getting, Mm. right? Because if we're compensating through through a movement, we might not be getting the stimulus that we actually want through that movement. Mm. So the more that we go up in weight, We're still concentrating on the concentric. We're still lifting a lot of weight. But what are we getting out of each of the reps? Are we still getting good movement out of it? Is it um, good stimulus for growth? Is it good patterning, right? So a lot of injuries are related to poor patterning of the movement. Um, For me, I think of the eccentric and even isometric components of uh, any kind of lift as the learning process. It's like a loading process. It's teaching us confidence that I can handle this amount of weight as I'm controlling it down. Right. And then being able to explode back up out of it, um, using like a four to one tempo with a lot of newer clients um, can very be very helpful in right. patterning the correct movement that we want to see.
0: W- would you say that? Uh, would you say that it's different in terms of whether or not your goal is to do strength or hypertrophy?
1: To a degree, yeah. Um, you know, if you if you are going too slow on the eccentric portion, you're, you're going to definitely have a lot of trouble coming out of the hole as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So this is why a lot of times when we refer to tempo, we generally would say as fast as possible, which really means as fast as I can control.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If I can drop down from my squat and pop up out of it without you know, losing my core or shifting myself too poorly, then why wouldn't I want to increase the speed at which I go down? if i'm artificially slowing myself down i'm making it harder because i'm that time under tension is now causing me to be less efficient if i can actually go faster
0: right right and and when you were talking about like you know the small minor shifts in your movement at the kind of more or less the bottom of the squat would you say you know your stability training and mobility training kind of has something to do with that as
1: well Absolutely. I think that when you consider um, most people when they deal with certain kinds of discomfort or injuries or movement patterns that are uncomfortable for them, we can usually identify a, a component of their body that isn't moving the way that is likely optimal. Mm. now I choose these words very carefully because you don't always need to fix all of these little tiny shifts Mm -hmm. your body is incredibly adaptable and so if you can continue to make progress and the shifts aren't causing any major issues or discomfort or pain then we can usually leave it because anatomically what we also can see out of individuals is um, there are slight variances we're not all exactly perfect some of us actually do have some limbs slightly longer than others uh, hip sockets more deeper than others Um, so your mobility also is an interesting word um, because we can conceptualize differently as well most people consider mobility as um, a combination of your general flexibility with your active control or active range of any base movement right Mm -hmm. so if i'm going to squat down to the bottom and i don't have enough range in my hips on the left side, then I might shift myself more to the right side. So over time, that can change the way that I squat, which can also in um, affect my relative injuries um, or potential of injuries. So maintaining a relatively good mobility is gonna be in each person's best interest because it helps them to do their lifts better. If your lifts are better, mm-hmm. you get more out of it and in that mm. and so you're more efficient with your relative training it doesn't mean that you can't let your form fall apart but as best that you can keeping higher standards is, is in your best interest because it will allow you to have longevity and right. sustainability in your lifting career right
0: right i, I also noticed you were, you're doing a lot of calisthenics now um do, do you would you say like bodyweight training and and doing like handstands and stuff like that kind of helps with you know mobility training stability training
1: yeah so a lot of calisthenics is built around um, like gymnastics based work so a lot of movements used in calisthenics like handstands pull-ups front levers back levers flag pulls and, and those are the more advanced techniques of course um, there's a certain degree of mobility. And mm. naturally to get better at some of those lifts, um, it, it can increase our what we consider our mobility, our active range of motion if we're doing it correctly. Mm. So the more proper pull-ups that you do, the better that your body will sort of adapt to it. Mm-hmm. If you do really poor pull-ups, your body also adapts to it. It will build the muscles Um, that are required to make you stronger at that movement. And this is why, for example, like with pull-ups, the individuals who pull through like this at the top and they're very rounded, they have a very difficult time strengthening themselves to the point where they can pull up with a slight chest extension. Mm -hmm. Um, Calisthenics is one of those things I think uh, is underappreciated. Right? It's teaching you how to better understand your own body. Um, when we talk about things like core control or like handstands, that really teaches us a lot about how to sort of like move our bodies and understand how to separate it. So for mm-hmm. example, in a handstand, we have to constantly think about uh, pushing our hands through the ceiling. And the more that we push through the ceiling, that allows for us to keep a slight uh, T-spine um, flexion. And, but at the same time, from there, I have to keep a slight uh, posterior pelvic tilt and lock my legs off while keeping them straight. And so as the, I'm doing that, the body remains uh, almost like a, a, a plank, right? Like it's an overhead plank if we really think about it. Mm-hmm. From there, once I learn to create the spinal stiffness, what I can begin to practice is like separating the lower body from the upper body. So being able to move the legs while keeping the upper body still. And so right. these pieces really help to, um, like, help at least help me to understand more about the other lifts. So, like, deadlifts and squats and bench press. It's learning how to create tension and in, in sort of feeling out the body that allows for me to, ex, um, uh, like, output as much force as I need in order to achieve what I'm trying to do. Right. Cause at the end of the day, that's what, that's, that, that's what training is about, right? It's teaching us to create enough internal force to overcome the external force, which in this case might be ourselves. It might be gravity. Uh, it might be, uh, weights, uh, tools. Do you put a lot of focus and emphasis
0: on diet for your clients?
1: Uh, Absolutely. I think that nutrition is one of those things where most people hit walls. Like the training side of things can be quite easy. Um, And I think also nutrition, at least for me, because of my counseling background, is much more around understanding um, like human behavior. And that is the client's Mm -hmm. um, perceptions around food and even what they think is expected out of them and even what trainers expect out of their clients. Um, what I have found to be um, more helpful in the years that I have been doing um, coaching and personal training is really working with clients collaboratively on where they're currently at. I think that's kind of the new trend right now in, in health and mental wellness is understanding um, and developing more comfortable and and healthier relationships with food and exercise, um, so what I do with a lot of my clients is yes, we do focus on nutrition, but we actually focus a lot more on the behaviors that lead to better nutrition so what I mean by that is um, a lot of people have difficulty um, you know eating breakfast in the morning they often state things such as um, you know, they're rushed in the morning, they don't have enough time, uh, they have to they do too many things in the morning as well. Um, and they also talk about, you know, being tired all the time. So a lot of trainers would come into the situation and be like, okay, well, like, uh, you know, what about if we make a smoothie or make a shake or overnight oats, right. um, you know, you can make that in the night before and then you can just eat it in the morning on the go. But they're what they're not hearing their clients say is that their client feels like they don't they're unable to do it for mm-hmm. and they're trying to give you these reasons.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What might be also more helpful in some cases and depending on the person as well is to collaborate with them is maybe they can eat breakfast later when they get to work. Maybe they have a later a later breakfast rather than sort of being guilty or being upset or focusing on people to eat breakfast for no reason. We have to contextually understand their life. Um, Let's say this client is also somebody who works in the hospital. And so you can't really walk around and eat, right? Other jobs, like an office, you might have the option of walking and eating. You could eat a granola bar, you can have a smoothie, you can eat in your office or whatever. So um, I like to spend more time doing those things. Right, like we we already know that like if we track food and we do this diligently and we follow yeah. through, we can see better results. Right, but where people always run into problems is um, it doesn't match their life, and almost all conversations would then start with um, giving an emotional reason for why they failed. Yeah, right. Like so, I overate this week because. I was late for work or you know like I got into a fight or there was nothing at home like there's always like this They're trying to emotionally reason as opposed to understanding like it's okay, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe I ate McDonald's today Um, Can we do like more of a harm reduction model? So in counseling what we do with that is like if we if we're trying to change a behavior It doesn't mean we have to take it away completely. Can we reduce it first? so if somebody often goes and eats fast food and they order I don't know, like a double cheeseburger with extra large fries and a large Coke. Maybe we can start with changing the Coke to a Diet Coke. Right. And then eventually we can work with changing the fries to a small fries, or maybe not at all. Um, There's a lot of different options where I think it's a lot more helpful to people to still be allowed to live their life. Mm -hmm. Um, Too many clients always start things with, you know, like I really wanna try to lose weight, but I just love eating. (laughs) That's great. Let's take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. Use your interest and your love for eating to enjoy eating and the process of losing weight. Yeah. Or gaining weight, I guess. I find like
0: being a personal trainer, you're not just a trainer. You're really there, you know, kind of as a friend, holding their hand through the journey and and also just kind of almost changing their, helping them change their, their lifestyle as a whole. And I kind of have, you know, a tiny bit of understanding of, behavior like in 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 a way where i was i took precision nutrition level one and they Mm -hmm. talk about you know a lot of behavioralistic things and you know i feel like emotion is definitely a very big driver for a lot of decisions as well i had you know a few clients uh back when i was working at the gym and you know they'd say james i I just lost, you know, my a loved one not too long ago, and you know I'm, I'm I'm really down. I I'm stress eating. I'm gaining a lot of weight, and you know I'm kind of at a little bit of a low point in my life right now. And um, you know, as a trainer, sometimes it's just it feels like you know you you kind of have a, a kind of a big responsibility in in a sense. And so, you know, I feel like sometimes being a trainer, it, it's it's pretty satisfying when you can see your clients get out of that low point and and seeing them grow. Do you also have, you know, quite a bit of knowledge on supplementation and and things like that?
1: So, um, my nutrition knowledge and my supplement knowledge is all more self-taught and self-learned. Um, you -hmm. know, minor courses in university, that was a while ago. I actually also took the precision nutrition course. It's a great course for many people to understand um, not just a little bit more about nutrition, but I love the the applied knowledge component, right? Like how to be more um, uh, actionable and behaviorable with your clients um, in terms of mm-hmm. relative supplements My knowledge is not nearly as advanced as some other individuals There's a lot of people who probably know a lot more than me. Uh, my supplementation is a lot more focused on just the bare basics um, because I find that um, we get hyper-focused on supplements and the behaviors and the skills that would give them more return or better results should be focused on, like, their, their habits around eating as opposed to supplements. Um,
0: mm.
1: In... In addition to that, supplements can be beneficial for those who are um, already able to maintain or doing well in their their general nutrition and their protocols. Um, adding in supplements is definitely a great way to increase um, some of the results that you can get depending on what you're taking, what you're doing as well. Um I think for a lot of people, like, they tend to stick to certain certain ones, right? We often hear about people taking pre-workout. They often talk a lot about taking right. um, protein, um, a lot of, like, intra-workout stuff like BCAAs. Um, in terms of, like, things like pre-workout, I always think about it this way. Could there be an uh, other ways that we could also incorporate that could lead to um, an improvement in our workouts, right? So I what I mean by that right. is... Um, setting ourselves up for success knowing certain ways uh, uh, for especially understanding ourselves of how to make our workouts better and that could be things like ensuring we get enough sleep like that's a huge one we spend a lot of time not sleeping or not having good sleep hygiene so sleep routines that encourage quality sleep so that we can be more energetic the next day Um, Not eating enough food or perhaps the right foods throughout the day can also make us feel more lethargic and also affect our workouts. Um, And then the trainer part of things is setting up the warm-up to not just warm up the body but someone's nervous system and also having the uh, effect that we do of sort of um, creating an environment that does want them to get themselves hyped up. Right? like As a trainer, I'm sure there's many times where you're exceptionally tired, you had no sleep, but as soon as your mm-hmm. client comes in, you have to understand that it's time to almost like turn yourself on. Because no matter how many mm-hmm. clients you've seen in a day, your next client, that's their first hour in the gym. And so a big part right. of helping us to understand and love the process of the gym is sometimes it sucks, sometimes it's good, and then sometimes it's fun. Like it is fun. And that's what, in my opinion, uh, is what creates longevity in our relationships with our clients. Um, Mm -hmm. As a trainer, I'm sure you've also kind of always struggled with this like constant like revolving door of clients or always searching for new clients. Right. If we can increase our value to these clients beyond just exercise beyond just nutrition information that's sort of like what i view as this next evolution of what a a true personal trainer is it's it's a lot Mm -hmm. of times these clients they trust you they ask you questions not just about fitness and nutrition they begin to ask you questions of other areas as well they tell you personal things Mm -hmm. they ask for your advice because what they're beginning to see or perhaps understand is your overall value to them And that sort of allows Mm -hmm. for us to, well, ideally still understand what our scope of practice is. But it allows for us to create a relationship with some of these clients um, that also sort of helps them reach their goals. Because now they know, like, this person's in my corner. I trust them. We've been working on it a while. We can collaborate together. And it's a very meaningful relationship.
0: I think I learned, you know, throughout doing personal training or, you know, running my own small business or just learning in school in general is that, relationships are really key to everything, key to success, I I think, because for sustainability and and longevity in any types of business, you have to actually give a shit about, you know, Mm. the the people you're working with. You actually have to care about them and to actually give them value in order for them to really want to actually work with you, stay with you. Um, And overall, you know, like, ultimately you probably become happier in life as well. I've asked you this question a while ago um, on Instagram. You probably remember. Is I made a TikTok video um, last year. I was talking about the the back to chest ratio for training, um, and this was what I learned. You know, in personal training school, is that you know sometimes people neglect back training, or um, even just think that training chest just makes them look better and whatnot. Would you say that there are, you know, certain times where you should be training the posterior chain more than the frontal or the front of the body?
1: Ah, yes, I do remember this question. So, um, this, this question tends to uh, be surrounding, um, I guess there are what people see as like almost like training guidelines or training suggestions, Um, And one of those is this two-to-one ratio, which is a two-to-one like pull-to-push ratio. And you can often hear it quoted as high as like three-to-one or even four-to-one. Yeah. So originally, I think when James asked me this question, he was asking about it in relation to like how some people uh, are, sorry, like how to understand this. And I explained it to James as, well, it kind of comes down to like, why what your intention around doing this is and so for some people when they say two to one ratio is helpful they're thinking of it as um most people already spend more of their time doing the mirror muscles right like those are the ones where we see them as our chest Mm. or the ones in our arms or our abs those things so push exercises are dominant Um, all different kinds of chest presses. Form tends to also be better with chest pressing, I find, because pulling for most people seems to be much more difficult to master comparatively to the bench press. Um, You don't ever really hear guys Mm. ask each other, yo, how much can you row? It's always, how much do you bench? (laughs) That is the strength standard, right? No one's really impressed by someone's like, whoa, they can row like two plates. It's just like, yeah wow that's uh that's cool and then they they go back to oh how much can you bench though um the two to one ratio can also be beneficial for like people who are learning to lift right so those are the people where they they may not fully understand um, body awareness relative to how to control their scapula or how to set their shoulders um, to create proper engagement um, or at least more optimal engagement i should say um that two to run ratio can also help with individuals who have for most of their lives been uh, more rounded or flexed over or uh, are in sports that um or activities that tend to lead to more of that. Mm-hmm. Um if you think about the way that boxers have to hold themselves, they have to keep a really like rounded shoulder position, they keep yeah. their arms up high, they spend a lot right. of period of time doing that, throwing punches. Um that uh, is also a possible um, opportunity to work a little bit more on pulling versus pushing
0: Mm -hmm. but better for posture right
1: yeah well i think that it it teaches us that awareness of like when earlier when we talked about the core concepts like of that spinal stiffness right when when you're able to create um a more stable position you can then exert Mm -hmm. more force and so if you're more unstable your body has to spend more energy trying to maintain that stability before it can exert a Mm. more amount of force so in like Mm -hmm. bench press for example if you lift your feet off the bench you're gonna have much more difficulty lifting as much as you normally would because you're spending more energy trying to stabilize but if you can really plant your feet drive Mm. them into the ground and sort of like press yourself into the bench then you can exert more force So I wanted to ask
0: about, uh, the, the, the form, you know, for the, kind of the general form for rowing, because what I, how I used to kind of cue my clients in terms of rowing is to be able to, cause this is like the, basically like one of the most common mistakes that I I always see, which is the shoulder roll forward and just pulling the elbows back. And so would you say, you know, like in terms of doing any sort of back exercise is to really get that get that shoulder back first and then pull the elbow back.
1: So this one is also one that I think is changing in terms of the general understanding of these kinds of movements, especially relative to like fascial lines, um, anatomy, lines of pull, the way the muscle fibers are oriented. Um when I when I first went through schooling right. as well, like and even all the years I've they've been exercising, it has always been pull your shoulders down and back and then do your thing, pull your shoulders down and back. Mm-hmm. When I learned early mm-hmm. on, um, they actually are these the general consensus of the time was you shouldn't protract. So when we were taught, we were taught to always keep it packed down and to never let it protract. Anytime we did any kind of rowing or movements. Yeah. yeah. Um, and even even when I'm working with clients as I'm teaching with them, I tend to teach them more systematically as a a general step-by-step process because I want them to understand sort of what they're doing and how to separate it. So when we even talk about moving the scapula, a lot of scapula, a lot of times when you try to teach a client to, for example, depress um, their lats, the first thing that they always do is they bend the elbow, Yeah. right? Because they may not be fully Mm -hmm. aware of or how to understand how to just move their lat or their shoulder girdle without doing this. And so at the beginning, we may have to teach them this mm. motion first so that they can learn to separate the two. Over time, of mm-hmm. course, we are going to want to um, chain it together. So as we teach it, like let's say one, two, right, or whatever, three. Eventually, I want them to understand yes, you actually want to do it in a fluid motion, but at the beginning, mm if they understand mm-hmm. that there are distinct steps to it, it's easier to learn. And this is actually where my experience mm-hmm. in the years that I spent working with special needs kids comes into play. Um, I feel like the ways okay. that we had to be creative when it came to teaching um, kids steps um, or certain actions and skills helps me immensely as a trainer. Because if you're not fully aware, um, the, the range of sort of behaviors that a person who has asd um uh, can sorry range quite wildly so some of them are more nonverbal, which means that they can't speak but they can understand relatively well others have very little comprehension of language in general and so i can't sit there and explain hey a squat is you know to, you know hip with the part you know turn feet out <laughs> so we have to look at ways of being more creative and teaching them positions by having them model or mimic us um and, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, there's a lot of different ways of approaching it. So I, I
0: know you have to go, but I have one, one last question here. I don't know if you know, like JPG on TikTok.
1: Uh, no. JPG coaching. No, I actually don't use TikTok. Oh, you no. don't? Why not? I just never was interested in it. I, uh, I don't really, I'm not really interested in watching them. No, that's, that's good. Cause
0: it's mostly just stupid people dancing. sync, Yeah. <laughs> No, I was just I was saying because what JPG says, you know, in terms of of rowing is, you know, what I learned was exercising in the full range of motion is is always going to be, you know, more or less a little bit better. But what happens is when your elbows get to a certain point in a row, you might start finding your shoulders kind of start rolling forward. Now, what's kind of confusing in that is do I keep going for the full range of motion, go all the way back or should I just stop at the point where Oh, I start feeling this coming forward.
1: Mm, 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 I see what you're asking. in, in the case of, especially I would say nowadays where we're focusing on different types of rows and now, uh, so earlier I had mentioned that uh, I had learned and was taught not to protract the shoulders. Nowadays, what we're starting to see is people are, are allowing a greater degree of movement through their shoulders mm-hmm. as well as their T-spine. They're kind of allowing more flexion um, before initiating sort of that depression into the um, into the extension as well i would say for most of the time it kind of really depends on what you're trying to achieve if you have difficulty maintaining that uh, sort of packed shoulder position it's coming as it's coming back then maybe that weight that you're using is not the most optimal for doing that movement because if the more that you're pulling back yeah you're you're getting greater range of motion but we have to ask is that greater range of motion worth anything Um, Mm. The concept of like junk reps or like junk range, for example, if you're compensating to artificially get uh, extra range or you're doing it and, you know, it's you're just getting like one or two extra reps. But if they're really bad, how much are you actually getting out Mm. of it? Yeah. Um, So it's uh, yeah. So in that case, I think perhaps even if they if I would drop the weight. And if they can now do Mm -hmm. the form better uh, to what we're Mm -hmm. looking for and they feel it better, then perhaps maybe that is where we wanna go rather than trying Mm -hmm. to get a couple extra reps at a higher weight that might not be doing anything if uh, we're not even doing it as well as we could.
0: So I know you have to go, but uh, I wish we could go a little bit, chat a little bit longer. Is there, you know, anything you, want, you kind of want to say to the audience?
1: No, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, if uh, anyone in the audience ever wants to chat with me, you can follow me on Instagram, my gym shorts. Um, the, the gym that I'm running is uh, all elite fitness, also on Instagram. So feel free to give us an ad and then uh, hit me up with any questions or if ever you want to come by and uh, hang out
0: awesome thanks so much brian that was a really really good insightful chat
1: oh yeah i was just saying thanks a lot for having me i really appreciate the chance to uh, kind of reconnect and be able to chat with you again um especially you know it's been a long time since uh you know back in the the school days
0: so that wraps up episode two of Jim pro talks make sure you like subscribe follow and comment who you want on the show next and what i should ask them again this is james from Jim Bro talks i'll see you in the next episode